0: At Some point I noticed that he's using the past tense more than I would expect when he's talking about uh, this. I asked, Why are you using the past tense? I thought it was still there. So, oh no, no, he got fired two months ago. We <laughs> had the nerve, by the way, to negotiate a huge sign up bonus to compensate for all the RSUs that he's supposedly living behind. This is after he got fired.
1: You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I'm your host Gopi Rangan. My guest today is Oren Ziv, a good friend and a mentor. He is a prolific venture capital investor, a one-man VC who has invested in so many successful companies. You may have heard of his stories, read about him, and listened to his podcast interviews in other places where he talked about how he has successfully raised many funds, a staggering amount no human being has ever done before, and more importantly than that, the kind of returns he has generated for his limited partners and the unusual ways of how he has approached venture capital. You have heard all of that, but today we're going to talk about something that we don't really hear from successful VCs because they don't like to brag how they help their portfolio companies. So I'm going to request Oren to put his modesty aside and talk to us about how he helps startups. What is value add for him? What kind of support that founders get from him that is very meaningful for them? Oren, Welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur.
0: Thank you, Gopi, and thanks for having me.
1: Let's talk about you. You grew up in Israel and you worked at IBM and then eventually you went to business school at INSEAD, moved to Silicon Valley. Can you tell us a little bit of that story before we jump into details? What got you into venture capital?
0: I got interested in venture capital just before I went to INSEAD because it was just started to happen. It was a very early in the evolution of tech in Israel, of tech startups in general. And then I went to Insight already with this idea that this was of interest to me. Actually, I got interested because a friend of mine was like literally one of the first person in venture. And he worked with me three, at IBM Research before he made the jump. And then when I went to Insight, already I had this seed that I'll probably go back to tech. And if I go back to tech, if I could, I'd love to get into this industry. So I took all the relevant courses that they had. And when I came back to Israel, the whole industry at that point was something like ten funds, twenty million each. That was the whole industry. And I met all of them. And when I said ten funds, I also mean ten to fifteen people because all these funds are one or two manager. That's it, because they couldn't support more than that at twenty million. And I got a couple of offers, but the one that was the most interesting to me it came from another friend who I was a classmate, a good friend from Inside, a classmate at Inside, he's English, and he got an offer from a venture capital firm, global venture capital firm called Apex that was headquartered in, in the UK in London. He got an offer for the London office and he told me, Hey, they are think of doing something in Israel. I can put you in touch with the right person, which he did and uh, it was a long conversation because the because it, it took them time to decide to do it and all that but 6 months later i actually had to stall with the others and then as as i was going to give up on them it came through and i basically was hired as one of the two people to start their operations in israel which was a great opportunity also the timing was amazing it was mid 90s so we had all this tailwind for 5 years before the big bust so anyway that was my entry to venture
1: why do you like venture capital
0: On one hand, I love being part of really changing industries and and creating businesses out of nothing. On the other hand, I'm probably not the right person to be in the driver's seat. I'm not the most organized person. I don't like managing people. I don't like being in an organization. So it's kind of like the perfect thing for me because on one hand, you can really be involved in big things. And on the other hand, you can keep your doing it in a very, very simple way, not part of a big corporation. So I think that this combination of two things really was appealing to me.
1: You like the habit of forming very strong opinions and acting on them, but at the same time, you also get to keep your independence. So you get to do what you like to do and say no to things you don't want to do.
0: Yeah, and actually I don't think of myself as someone with very strong opinions. I have strong opinions on how I do things, but when I'm interacting with a founder, I actually don't assume that I know better. I almost never have strong opinions about what they need to do. The only way for me to have strong opinions if it's the same opinion as the founders. In my case, at least, I don't think it's about having strong opinions, but it is about being the strongest support system I can be for the founders, whatever that entails, and help them increase the chances of success and also help them make the journey, which is a very long journey typically, just more enjoyable. Because one of the things that wear out founders, I found, is constant and unnecessary pressure and grief that they sometimes get for some uh, investors or board members. And many times it comes out of insecurity, not security of all those investors or board members. So I try to just be a very unconditional support system for the founders.
1: So you form high conviction. You believe in things before other people. You don't look for social proof. And those things often people aren't able to do in larger organizations, whether even even it's a venture capital firm or a regular large company. And as an independent VC, you have that freedom and you enjoy that. Let's talk about value add. You have helped your portfolio companies. You want to be the strongest support system. I want to ask you this controversial thing that comes up often. Let me know how I can help you. What is wrong with that statement? It's actually become a meme.
0: And you know what? I... I hated this statement before it became a meme, so I was actually glad to see it become a meme. It's almost like if you need to ask, you probably don't get it. Because when you ask it like that, typically, to me, it's a question of mindset. My mindset is constantly, how can I help these companies? And it's not necessarily when I see the company that I'm thinking, how can I help them or I ask them out. No, almost every meeting that I have, no matter the context, no matter what's on the other side, In my head, I'm thinking, is there any one of my companies that can benefit from anything that this person can do? Any connection that this person can help with? Just from this week, for example, I'm meeting a candidate, which I do a lot, by the way, a candidate for, uh, in this case, a CFO, one of my companies. So the main reason for the meeting is for me to help vet the person, back channel reference that person, and also help persuade this person. But even if this is the main reason, there's no reason why I'm not going to carve out two minutes at the end and see if I can get introductions for two or three of my companies that actually sell to the office of the CFO. So it's, it's an example. And this is, I think, from yesterday, but I can give like five such examples from, the, from this week alone. Okay? So obviously, it's more relevant to the B2B companies, but at least with customers, it's easier to help. With customers, obviously, it's, you can only help B2B companies. You cannot really help B2C companies with customers, but you can help them in other ways. So, almost any meeting that I take, trying to get something out of it for one of my companies, or at least one of my companies.
1: You are actively involved with your founders. You observe what they do. You try to find things that they might need help with, then reach out to your network to see who can help. Those companies, and you're constantly watching for this, and it happens every week. And you've given a few examples just from this week. What are the top two or three areas where you help your startups?
0: The first customers are going to uh, help you get to product market fit or not, and it's not easy to get them necessarily. So, if you can, you know, out of the first 10, 20, 30 customers, you can bring a significant amount of them that's real help. And I know enough people that are in, and I'm not shy about asking these favors. And the reason I'm not shy about asking these favors is because I know if it was the other way around, I would be happy to do it as well for this, Before anyone that I ask. So it's a two-way street. Area number two, which I also alluded to, which is arguably even more important, is recruiting. Because at the end of the day, you cannot be successful unless you build the right team and a strong team. So the way for me to be helpful on the recruiting side is I think where I probably do more than anyone else that I've seen because I do interview typically the finalist candidate with two objectives, help vet them and help persuade them. And this is something that's pretty standard. I think most investors do it. I take any such finalist candidate as a challenge in terms of finding ways to get back channel references on them. And because of been doing this for almost 30 years, and so I have significant network and people will typically t- take my call and by the way sometimes even if they don't really know me because they know of me they'll take the call so i don't need to know someone who knows that person i will just get to someone who knows someone who might know that person and ask them to ask them and they'll do it so most of the time if the candidate was with a venture-backed company before probably i'm going to be able to get to a few of references So that's number two. And that's super important because, you know, people may tell me things that they wouldn't necessarily tell someone that their name is less well known. So maybe if the CEO called this person, maybe they wouldn't get this the same answers as if I got to the person who was giving the background references, but I got to him, even if I didn't know him, I got to him through someone very senior who told him, listen, I'm really asking you to give it to Warren as it is. I'm more likely to get references that's closer to the truth. So that's super important because if you help the company avoid a bad hire in a critical role, you save them a year because it takes a few months before you understand that you made a mistake and then a few months to try, and then you realize that you can't, and then you fire them, but then you also need some time to find a replacement and onboard a new person. It's more or less a year. And if you made this mistake with the CRO or the chief marketing office or the CFO, whatever it is, so that's super important. Then I would say extension of customers is also partnerships, maybe um, in later stages, potential buyers, potential advisors. It, that's an extension to recruiters. This, you know, you know what? You have a problem with uh, the product. I'm not a product expert. I cannot help you with the questions that you have. But I know this two or three people who have a lot of experience in the you know specifically in this. You know, they'll and if they get the phone from me again, they're probably busy. They have alternatives. But there's a better chance that they'll take on this first a meeting, but also take their time to help this company if it, if the request came from me. And finally, I think that. Future fundraisings, you know, I typically quarter, you know, it depends on the founders. It's whatever, what, in all these things, by the way, it depends on the funder, whatever they want to, I never try to dictate anything. But future fundraisings, I typically really help quarterback the process. And when I, obviously, I know the potential investors, I know the right partner within the firm is likely to be for that company, and nobody's going to invest in a company because I told them so because I made the connection, but they are going to prioritize it and clear them the calendar and take the meeting sooner than later. So it's going to help. But still, at the end of the day, they're going to back to the founder. So at the end of the day, the founders still have to have a compelling case
1: for investment. So you help companies find customers. B2B companies are a lot easier because you know, other yep. customers are all other companies. B2C is a little harder. We can help with other things for the company. Yeah. You helped with uh, recruiting, mainly back-channeling on the candidate to confirm that he or she... also
0: persuasion, you know, the ability, you know, you talk to candidates who have alternatives. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I, I was much less credible if I looked someone in the eye and I told them why I believe that this is going to be a huge success, because I was just much less credible than I am today. Today, I am much more credible. And by the way, I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it.
1: In recruiting, you can help with channel and you can also help with winning the candidate when the candidate has multiple job offers to choose from. And of course, various other things like advisors and partnerships and channels and various other things. And of course, the last thing that is also very important is fundraising.
0: I was at a board meeting two days ago and one of the board members was talking with very opinionated man. you know, like they had no doubt. And what I was thinking, and I often say it, to founders is there really is very little correlation between the level of certainty that an investor has and the validity of their point. So many of us, I think, feel that we need to communicate to convey confidence in whatever opinion that we have. And I think that this confidence is very often unwarranted because at the end of the day, the founders do know better. They are closer to things. And just because we have one or two data points, you know, under totally different circumstances, maybe maybe in a different time, different company, different market, maybe, semi, you know, I think one mistake that VCs make is to extrapolate from one or two data points and then have like real certainty that they have the right answer. And this is what I meant by actually the importance of not having too strong opinions.
1: Your high conviction in these founders since you have that, you are able to credibly go in front of a candidate and tell the candidate that why you believe in this company. And if you didn't have that kind of high conviction, it'll be hard for you or any VC who doesn't have that kind of conviction. It'd be difficult to convince a smart candidate to choose that offer. Can you give a couple of examples how you helped one of your startups get a customer or help convince a candidate or do back channel and perhaps even prevent from a bad hire?
0: When Navan started out, for example, we really needed the companies to trust us that will take care of their travel. And obviously at that point, we could only get really small companies. And the easiest is to start with my own portfolio. And then anyone I meet, I ask for a favor. For example, I met a fellow VC and they asked for advice on something. And I was generous with my time, uh, which I usually am. And then at the end, I said, you know, I have can you help me, do you have a company that you're close to the CFO and you can maybe introduce the, the to them? Back then it was called Trip Actions, And that's how, for example, they got Canvine. That's how they got Zoom. That's how they got early. That's how they got Box. In the case of the other two cases, I didn't even know the right people there, but I asked someone to, uh, to make the connection. And the many, many more, I don't remember, but many, many other names of similar customers. So I can give the same example with Tipalti other companies. With candidates, actually, I do have a story that is interesting.
1: All right, let's right. get into it.
0: So, I don't want to even mention the name, but one of my most visible companies, we had a final candidate for a very critical role, probably the most important role after the founders at that point in time. This is after it passed the diligence of the recruiter, the diligence of the other top tier VCs and what have you, and the founders and everyone. And, but we couldn't talk to his current company because he was still working there, by the way, which is a a typical problem when you hire someone who's in a company, this could be the most relevant role and they may have been doing it for the past few years and you cannot really get credible information about that because they tell you you can't ask there, which I understand. Anyway, and I'm thinking, how am I going to get to this company without talking to this company? And then, I, you know, I basically hacked through LinkedIn and whatever. I managed to find someone who had left that company a few months ago who was connected to someone else I knew. Okay. I didn't even know this person. Okay, Anyway, I get to him. The same thing always. They're happy to take the call. And, you know, I, I, I talk to him about this candidate and I see he's not, he's pretty lukewarm, but he's still pretty, sounds pretty, pretty balanced. And then at some point I noticed that he's using the past tense more than I would expect when he's talking about uh, this. I asked, why are you using the past tense? I thought it was still there. So, oh no, no, he got fired two months ago. We had the nerve, by the way, to negotiate a huge sign-up bonus to compensate for all the RSUs that he's supposedly living behind. This is after he got fired. By the way, even when he was confronted with the truth, he blatantly denied it and told him, no, you can call now the CEO of the company. And he, by the way, I don't know, he probably was hoping that we're not. And at some point, obviously, he um, he started crying, etc., etc. So now this is a huge, uh, I think, a huge save for the company. Think about it. You know, hiring someone based on... What would it would be like in this case, actually, we probably would have probably learned about it two or three months later. Uh, and then maybe I don't know what we would have done then, Fired that person. Anyway, an interesting example, like to go the extra mile to get to the right background reference and not rely on. I could have said, oh, you know, these guys and this is a big name, big name. This is these guys or, or the invented them and the recruiter and the founders. I didn't have to do the work. You know, I could have find excuses. Why not? And uh,
1: you saved a year of effort of yeah, it's an, yeah, that was problems. a more juicy story yes
0: it's less dramatic but still they're interesting stories sometimes
1: it's very difficult for startups to recruit high quality candidates and they often take risks some risks are just not worth taking this is a dramatic story especially when someone misrepresented their employment details light, and,
0: light. i think yes. the accurate word is light i don't think <laughs> yeah this is more than misrepresent
1: <laughs> yes this is blatant lie and they continue to defend it to some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You don't want to bring on a candidate like that. When you're trying to build authenticity and honesty as a you know, cultural value in the company, this goes against the grain. And it is not possible to find these details easily unless you proactively take interest in doing background check. And especially when you can't call the employer directly and ask for reference, you have to do it in a, in a quieter way, which doesn't disrupt the candidate's current position. And you were very mindful of that. Those things are very difficult for founders to do by themselves because they have a job to run the business. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the mistake that sometimes people do out of lack of experience is that they just are OK with two or three references that or five references or whatever that the candidate provides. And, you know, anyone can find three or four people would say good things about it. So you have to uh, you have to really push because at the end of the day. Many people are really good at selling themselves. I do not trust my own ability to vet people just because I'm so experienced that just by speaking with them, I'll really understand exactly what the strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah, sometimes you you do have more intuition than maybe 20 years ago, but still the best way by far to really learn about a candidate is these references.
1: Many VCs have good intentions, even good VCs, they want to help. So they're actively looking for a way to get involved. That becomes a trouble sometimes. Do you ever encounter the situation? When do you back off?
0: No, I never encounter this situation because to me, the line, the boundaries are very, very clear. I only help when my help is wanted. If the founder prefers to speak with me once every three months or not at all for that matter, rather than board meetings, that's okay. I don't take it personally. I don't take offense. I don't think that because of that, they'll necessarily fail. And you know what? I have actually a, a, a funny story about that as well. One of the early rounds at Tipalti, we had two offers. One was a brand name VC, and the other one was a no-name family office. And the family office guy basically said, you know, we don't need to be on the board. And, you know, if you need anything from us, ask us. And if we can do it, we'll do it. But, you know, we don't know that we can promise anything and uh, we're not going to bother you. The VC said, we're going to have a weekly. I'm going to really help you be successful. We're going to have two hours a week session. I'm going to teach you how to do this and that. Guess who the founder of party chose? <laughs> it was a very easy decision for them. Very easy decision.
1: <laughs> now, founders want help, but they want help when they choose. No, that to one.
0: Not when it's forced by someone else. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a gap between what the VC might think is help and what the yes. uh, founder perceives as help. Just like people say the customer is always right, in this case, the founder is always right. Even if I think that my advice is great, if the founder doesn't value my advice as great, it's, they're not gonna follow it anyway. So it's just a waste of their time. So I want them to only talk to me if they wanna talk to me. I think I can help with back channel references in, in other ways. But if they prefer to uh, close down with that, be fine, it's their decision, it's their company. I'm, again, I'm not going to be offended same thing with any advice that i give i'm totally detached first of all i'm totally detached from whether or not the founders took my advice or not you don't don't
1: get upset when founders don't follow your advice and even if you think that they're even if i think they're
0: wrong about it by the way they may not be wrong as i said i don't have strong opinions to begin with so (laughs) but even if i thought they were wrong
1: how much time do you spend on value add compared to fundraising for your own funds Sourcing deal flow, winning deals against other competitor VCs.
0: Actually, a lot. You said before, every VC wants to add value. In theory, it's true, but you know what? Most of them are really busy. And part of the reason why they're so busy is because there's a lot of internal stuff. And the larger the partnership is, the more internal stuff there is. And I can write a book about it because I spent my first 12 years in such a partnership at Apex. And by the way, back then, I don't think I was particularly helpful, or at least not more than average. To founders, So I just have a lot of free time. <laughs> so if
1: you were to split and roughly, I know you're not tracking a I think most of, the, most of the time
0: because I don't make too many investments. I don't see too many companies, new companies that is. I don't do a lot of diligence when I do make investments. I don't write any memo. I don't need to prepare anything. When I do make investments, it's a very quick process, typically 24 hours, 48 hours. So I would say that most of the time, is spent. Now, it's also not a question of time. I don't think it's a little bit. Sometimes people say, Oh, no, I add, I add a lot of money because I spend an hour here with them and an hour there. You know, the actual, the best value you add to companies is typically things that don't take much time. Sending an email to, you know, I just gave you examples. I'm meeting someone, I'm meeting them anyway. And then the last two minutes, I ask for an introduction and um, I try to at least get one useful introduction for one of my company from each meeting that I have. Doesn't take any time. I was making. I was having these meetings anyway. Not to mention sending emails. Not to mention, for example, fundraising. How much time does it take to go over a list of uh, investors, choose how many we're going to address, and then uh, send them an email telling them why they really should meet this company SAP because it's compelling. How much time does it take? Doesn't take a lot of time. Sometimes if you spend too much time with a founder. You waste too much of their time. And the value that's supposed to come out of it doesn't make up for the time that you waste. So I do spend a lot of time, but that's why I said it's more of a, a mindset thing. You know, I drive, you know, many of these connection or phone calls I make when I, for example, from the car, to me, it's all about the results. By the way, even if I made 10 introductions, unless something came out of it that didn't add value, maybe yes, because maybe they got some feedback. But at the end of the day, I want them also to become customers. I also owe partners, whatever the case may be.
1: So you keep these topics in mind. They are fresh and they're always top of your mind. When you meet someone, you quickly jog through what question can I ask this person or what favor can I ask this person in the final two minutes that would be most relevant for which company and for what kind of use. If it's relevant for that person also who you're asking favor for, they would be excited to follow up. It's always
0: relevant in the sense that they want to do me a favor the no, way, no, this is Silicon Valley culture, also Israel culture. Maybe in other places it's different, but you want the other... I, I guess it is, I like give someone an opportunity to do me a favor. And by the way, I see the other way around the same thing. If someone asks me for a favor, I see there's an opportunity to do them a favor, right? But at the end of the day, this is the person who makes the connection. But the actual customer, it has to be compelling for them as well. Otherwise, I didn't help anyone because if I am pushing something, it really is not a fit. Even if they're gonna do me the favor and take the meeting, I didn't help them. I didn't help the company. They just wasted time. So yeah, of course, that's why I have enough companies <laughs> that almost any meeting with anyone I can think of. Okay, this could be relevant. to This is, you know, I have. Uh, I'm not. I'm trying not to abuse the people I, I ask for favors, and always happy to reciprocate.
1: We're coming towards the end of our conversation, and I often ask this question to many VCs. The industry is going through a lot of changes. What is one thing that you'd like to see change to make this industry better?
0: In general, I do think that, yes, things change, but also a lot of things do not change. The fundamentals don't change that much, as people think or talk about. And at the end of the day, I think this industry is working. I know it's very popular to say, this is broken, this is broken. Founders are taught to start every presentation by, X is broken, here's how I fix it. And, you know, many people like to, many people sometimes try to argue, VC is broken, this thing's I actually don't think it's broken. It's working. It's been working for the past 50 or 60 years. Maybe AI is going to break it. Maybe other things are going to break it. Who knows? It's always been cyclical. And there is a clear explanation why cyclical. And the fact that it's cyclical is not a problem in itself. It's not a problem that every now and then you'll have times of exuberance. And then there will be, you know, Some kind of a depression, you know, the recession, depression, whatever. That's okay. There's opportunities in the down cycle and the up cycle. Just need to play the game right and take advantage of the opportunities when they occur.
1: So I'm less of a revolutionary from that perspective. Okay. I want to ask you about your community involvement. Sure. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Yeah.
0: Yeah, So I forget when, because it's been a while, but uh, six, seven, eight years ago, I helped start an organization called Icon, not-for-profit, with the idea that we are going to help Israeli founders in the Bay Area, help the bridge between Israel and the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. We expanded since, but that, that's still the core. The best decision we made was that uh, one of us agreed to lead it, and she turned out to be a great leader. Our name is Yasmin Lukatz, and she's the leader of the organization, myself as a co-chairman since the beginning. But it's really made a difference and really played a huge role in helping large number of companies others succeed. And by the way, we operate through relevant connections and events and uh, and content and things like that. And the only reason we'll do it is to pass it forward, basically.
1: Aaron, thank you very much for spending time with me. Thank you for sharing very exciting, very insightful stories that are rarely spoken about where we can all learn from I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world.
0: Thank you very much, Gopi. It was fun.
1: Thank you for listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.